welcome to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change, where we bring you stories of real people working to address real issues. I am your host, Shimon Cohen. In this episode, I talk with Shoshana Brown and Autumn Leonard of the Black Jewish Liberation Collective and Jews for Economic and Racial Justice, based in New York City. We discuss what anti-Semitism is, ways it functions, and how anti-Semitism and racism are features of white supremacy. Shoshana and Autumn talk about their work to provide a communal space for black Jews and how they organize to disrupt anti-Semitism and racism. We get into a lot in this interview, but there is so much more on this topic that needs to be talked about. I know that even though I'm Jewish, I could do a better job talking and teaching about anti-Semitism and how it works to divide us. It can be frustrating to bring it up when so many people are not taught the origins of anti-Semitism and how it operates. At the same time, those of you who follow the podcast know that we can't avoid these hard topics, and like Shoshana, Autumn, and I talk about, change only comes when we address anti-Semitism and racism and work to build community. I hope this conversation inspires you to action. Before we get into the interview, I want to let you all know about our episode's sponsor, the University of Houston Graduate College of Social Work. First off, I want to thank them for sponsoring the podcast. UH has a phenomenal social work program that offers face-to-face master's and doctorate degrees, as well as an online and hybrid MSW. They offer one of the country's only political social work programs and an abolitionist-focused learning opportunity. Located in the heart of Houston, the program is guided by their bold vision to achieve racial, social, economic, and political justice local to global. In the classroom and through research, they are committed to challenging systems and reimagining ways to achieve justice and liberation. Go to www.uh.com edu forward slash social work to learn more. And now, the interview. Hey, Shoshana and Autumn, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm really excited to have this conversation, and it's been a long time coming as far as doing the work um, the podcast goes. I've wanted to do an episode about anti-Semitism. Um, I did one with Eric Ward um, a, like years ago on fighting white nationalism. And it wasn't explicitly about anti-Semitism. Um, and I love, I love his stuff and I love what he's been talking about lately. Um, and for, th- for this episode, you know, when I'm thinking about doing one on anti-Semitism, I just wanted to be really mindful and conscious like I am with all my shows but um there's just you know often when we have Jews talking about anti-semitism it's white Ashkenazi Jews like me um talking about it and anti-black racism doesn't then get addressed so um and we know that exists within the larger Jewish community and so that's something I wanted to be really mindful of so that's I'm so grateful that you both are on here and we're going to have this conversation. So just to, with all that said, just to start out, maybe you both could introduce yourself and share a little about how you identify. 
Hi, I'm Autumn. I am a mother of two. I am black and Jewish. Um, I'm married to a Jewish dude, raising two Jewish kids. Uh, one more successfully than the other one. Um, I am the former co-chair of the race working group at my synagogue, Kalot Hainu. Um, a member of the Jew of Color uh, cohort at Jews for Racial and Economic Justice, and also on the kind of wisdom crew at the Black Jewish Liberation Collective with Shoshana. Autumn is amazing. Um, I just have to say that out loud. <laughs> but my name is Shoshana. I use she or they pronouns. And I am a Black Jewish femme living in New York City. I'm born and raised in New York City for three generations strong. So I am here. <laughs> uh, even though, you know, this city is very, very different than uh, I grew up in. That aside... Uh, I'm a social worker, uh, trained as an organizer, and uh, currently working full-time as a school social worker. And uh, al alongside with Autumn in leadership at the Black Jewish Liberation Collective, uh, as well as a member of Jews for Racial and Economic Justice, Radical Social Work Group, uh, and overall just a love of restorative justice and fighting anti-Black racism all over the place. <laughs> I love it. And the work y'all are doing, just super excited to talk more about it. So, you know, to start out, I was just thinking we could talk about like how you or how we define anti-Semitism. So, you know, if you have some sort of I don't know. It doesn't need to be some super specific definition, but kind of like, what do you, you know, how do you explain anti-Semitism to people? When I think about anti-Semitism, I focus on who benefits, right? So this is a system that was created in Europe a couple hundred years ago as um, Jews were fleeing uh, violence in Western Asia, sometimes called the Middle East. Um, and as they were fleeing into Europe, um, European people who are holding wealth there, right? Like wealthy landowners, feudal lords, whatever you want to call it, um, made rules. They said, you Jews don't get to own land. Um, there are only very specific things that you can do. And one of those was being tax collectors. So then the Jews become the face of taxation, which everybody loves being taxed. You can see that's still in this country. Um, and uh, so then when folks are like, well, my taxes are too high, they're directing that anger at Jews instead of the people. Jews aren't making the rules. They don't want to be the tax collectors and they don't get to decide how much people are taxed for. They are just the face of a system. Right. Um, and so that system keeps the Jews separate from the poor white folks in Europe, the poor white the, I guess at that point, they were just called Europeans. They weren't even called white folks um, from the poor Europeans. And so they become separate. So the Jews aren't benefiting and uh, poor Europeans aren't benefiting, but someone is benefiting from that system. And meanwhile, directing the anger of people who might be experiencing unfair taxation towards Jews. And so things like that are the beginning of anti-Semitism. As I understand it, I'm not a historian, but I like to read. Um, and then that system gets imported over here to the U.S., where um, it gets mapped onto racism, which is also a system that was created to keep poor white folks um, 
uh, in line. And I like to point out that it's poor white folks more than it is black folks, even though black folks, black bodies are disproportionately like endangered and hurt by racism. There's only like still in this day and age, 12% of the population is black folks. And like back then it was like similar, like actually a pretty small percentage of the overall population. And so what they're really seeking to control is not black people, but poor white people. And they're doing that by saying, dude, you do not want to end up like those people over there. So unless you like separate yourself black and white, um, you will end up being dehumanized in the same way that black folks were dehumanized in this country as enslaved people. Um, So then like when Jews come over here um, around the turn of the century, um, my grandfather just passed away. He would have been 99 this month. So like when Jews first come over here, um, they are, um, uh, they are considered, uh, not to be white. Right. Um, and they immediately get involved in social change. They do amazing union organizing, right? Like they're part of, um, like a lot of the stuff that's baked into New York city, right? Like in terms of like clothing manufacturing and Jews are like a part of like fighting for things like the five day work week. Um, and then what happens is uh, somebody then brings anti-Semitism as like a great system of control. Right. And they're like, Hey, um, Black folks, uh, you know, when you are victims of things like redlining in real estate, where we are refusing to like let you buy houses outside of certain zones, um, the real perpetrators of that are Jews, right? And so the Jews don't benefit from this. Black folks definitely don't benefit from this, but somebody does benefit when these groups that have more in common with each other don't get along. And so I really always look at these systems, whether it's racism or anti-Semitism, and I ask myself, well, this system didn't just happen. Somebody worked to make a system like this work and who benefits from it. And so when you see Black folks like my hairdresser being upset at a from man because he outbids her for a building here in Brooklyn, and she's like, hey, I'm trying to amass some generational wealth to pass on to my family. You already have three buildings. Like, could you give me this one? You know, like our bids aren't that different. Could you just like see me as a person? And he's like, no, I don't see you. Like you are not part of my people. Um, And so like, then she's like, all Jews are X, but actually like the from dudes in Williamsburg and Brooklyn are not the huge, like wealthy real estate tycoons in this city there is someone else who is benefiting. And that's like how I see anti-Semitism and how it gets mapped into our country today and historically. Someone is benefiting from it and it really is not the Black folks. Yeah, and I would I would add to that by like sharing that I think this happens in the areas, not only of real estate, where we see that's true for real estate, but we also see that in the area of like jewelry, Right. Um, And there's like a huge history around um, how Jewish people got into the jewelry business that actually has to do with settling South Africa Um, and the diamond in uh, the diamond industry in South Africa. Um, And then you can also see that in Hollywood where like um, just last week, my coworker was like, yeah, but all Jews, they own Hollywood. And I'm like, actually, Right. And so we see these myths continue to 
self-perpetuate. And I think um, it's important as we sort of uncover our definition, our understanding of anti-Semitism, that we look at the ways in which this is systemic and institutional and not just about the one-to-one, like, one person hating a Jew or blaming, targeting um, or blaming a Jew for one thing, but sort of like look at the pattern over centuries of targeting and blaming Jews um, and confusing non-Jewish people about who actually is in power and who actually has power and how easy that has become now that um, a lot of Ashkenazi white Jews have assimilated into um, white American culture and assimilated and accepted white privilege and benefit from white privilege and find that there are so many, I mean, we can talk forever about all of the advantages that one receives from white privilege that would make it sexy to be like, well, yeah, sure. Like, I mean, if I'm going to get this privilege, all right. And um, not really having the consciousness of what that then means and what the detriments of um, accepting and moving um, with white privilege has both on the broader like Jewish community overall and also on our American society, right? Like our society as a whole. Um, so in short, I would just add that I think, um, anti, uh, easy way to understand anti-Semitism is that it is, um, a wedge and a way that often myths are created to blame, um, Jews for things that are, um, not necessarily, um, to the, to the benefit of Jews who people believe it is. So they become the wedge in between many other oppression issues yeah absolutely like this like buffer um group almost like the role of like a managerial class in a way i'm not saying it's all like that but if we it's one comparison um you know i learned something in the last year about anti-Semitism that I never knew before. And I was reading this book, Racism, Not Race, Answers to Frequently Asked Questions by um, Joseph Graves and Alan Goodman. And there's this, it, it has this question, is anti-Semitism a form of racism? And they say yes. Mm-hmm. And that it's a unique form. Um, but they talk about the word anti-Semitism uh, being coined in 1879 by a German political agitator because then German, the term was Judenhaus, which means Jew hatred. Mm-hmm. And it was like a freely used term, right? So um, people weren't trying to hide it, you know, and it makes me really wonder like if anti-Semitism never became a term and people were actually saying like, Jew- like this is Jew hatred, you know, Mm-hmm. how this would be different um because i think just even the term itself is confusing for people right and that's what the goal was to do back then was it turned jews into like this semitic people it made this race which for them they already had a scientific hierarchy of race that they were using so f- like for them it was like fine to do that you know like for the germ these aryans that were doing this um because they could put Semitic people at the bottom and Aryans on top, right? 
but it's a it's a strange term and like we see this come up with some of the stuff that's like been in the news recently about like Kanye and Kyrie and we'll get into a little a bit more about that later right but like them saying like how can we be anti-semitic if we're semitic too type of stuff you know um and I, it just makes me wonder, and I, I mean, there's no going back at this point. We're not going to like the term anti-Semitism not going away. Um, but it does make me wonder, like in the book, they're like, it's like, we should all really just say Jew hatred because that's what it is. That's so interesting. I'm going to think about that. I mean, that's a hundred percent what it is, but also, yeah, I mean, I, I think of it, I think of it a little bit, uh, like the same kind of oppression Olympics sometimes that people like to play where they're like, you know, um, I was thinking about this on a call the other night where somebody was like, um, a black person was like, why do like, like looking at one of those power privilege wheels and was like, why does my citizenship convey power and privilege? Because like, I am a stolen person on stolen land. So like, I didn't, like my ancestors didn't choose to be here. So why does citizenship confer like power on me? And I was like, yo, I get that. I really get that. And also during the pandemic, when we were getting those pandemic paychecks, undocumented folks couldn't access it. And that's your privilege. And that person was like, dope. I see that. I can see mm -hmm. that. So it's like you, you sometimes you just have to put it in terms that make sense. Right. Because you're like, yeah, like you are disproportionately targeted by the police. Yeah. Your kids get put into jail and suspended at like all these extra. So what benefit does citizenship confer on your body and your family's body? But then you're like, but actually you got stimulus paychecks and there are like millions of people in this country who couldn't access it because they don't have papers and they still pay taxes. That's the thing that always blows my mind. Right. Like undocumented folks pay taxes. And then we're like, okay, here's the benefits of citizenship. And they don't get it. And I'm like, but they paid in. Like, they don't get Social Security, but they are still paying for Social Security. That sucks. Anyway, that's a digression. But that's like when you're like talking about like whether or not we call it Jew hatred and if that would make a difference. I'm like, I think you really have to put it in terms that make sense to the people you're talking to, right? Like, I'm not, you can maybe tell from how I like to tell stories. I don't always like pull out a bunch of academic facts and throw them at people because I don't think that's how we build trust and understanding. That's just like, I'm going to bludgeon you with my knowledge. Well, one thing that I want to bring up is also that uh, the anti-Semitism piece is I don't want us to get caught up or confused about the origins of the word anti-Semitism. Because actually, I think that that's a different conversation to have about like, well, it's anti-Semitism, but it's not related to all Semitic people and things like that, right? Um, really what, and even that conversation serves the purpose of anti-Semitism to confuse everybody about what is this thing that we're talking about. And part of what makes it confusing, and as we talk about like the how it's related to racism um, and racial issues here in the U.S., is that the anti-Semitism often appears as cyclical rather than hierarchical. So whereas most oppression are about there's a group of people on the bottom 
and there's a group of people on the top, right? There's the people who have privilege and the people who are oppressed. And if you go down the line and looking at racism, sexism, ageism, adultism, um, ableism, etc., you'll see that there's very binary categories of do you get do you receive privilege in this area or are you oppressed by this issue right whereas i think with an anti-semitism we don't see it operate specifically as always either privileged or oppression but rather cyclically in the in the context of what benefits christian white supremacists if in the moment Blaming something and making Jews the bad guy actually helps me get away with theft, as we're seeing with the Trump real estate corporation. <laughs> um, then, yeah, let's blame the Jews. But if um, making the Jews, you know, part of uh, accepting them into whiteness and offering um, a certain community of Jews white privilege benefits us in the context of a war that we want to fight, then we will offer them white privilege, right? Mm -hmm. And so you see this thing, this push and pull, and you see Jews sort of like often, white Jews specifically often, and Jews in general being ping pong between actually being Jewish is good and I have this privilege or access, and then Actually, being Jewish is bad. I want nothing to do with it. I want to hide it. I don't want anybody to know about it. And we see that cycle happening over and over, whether it's in the context of the U.S. or in Germany or in Europe or in other places. That is actually like the core of how anti-Semitism operates is that it's useful when it's useful, right? Um, And so instead of just sort of being stiff and rigid about how we understand anti-Semitism, we actually have to look at the cyclical um, paths that are happening. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I think it's, it is a very confusing process for people, you know, because there's things about being Jewish that, you know, like 2% of the population or whatever, right? So there's going to be things where like, if you're Jewish, you're in the minority and you've got different cultural ways of doing things and things like that that come up, right? Um, but then there's... Unless you live in New York City and then you think it's normal. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, I know. And and y- that's a whole other... Um, it's just a whole and other situation. And then you're like, wait, right? not everybody eats bagels? That's not a normal thing? <laughs> well, like here in Miami, um, even on like the high holy days, like they call it teacher work days here. But like for me growing up in Maine, like, you know, we always got pulled out of school on those days and it was like a huge issue with um, tests and homework and the moms would always go and try to explain like, please don't give tests on these days. So like those were things about being like this minor, right? Like this like religious and cultural minority. Um, right. It wasn't necessarily... So those are like some structural things and things that are going to happen when you're a group like that. But that's different also, even though maybe there's a piece of it, of like being afraid of getting rounded up again and, you know, what could happen, you know, which I think is a trauma um, that affect. I mean, I don't, I can't, obviously, I don't speak for all Jews, (laughs) but like, 
I mean, everyone that I've ever talked to in my family history, it's like clearly passed down of like, this could happen again, you know, and we hear it all the time. And I think it's a real fear, you know, which is oh, that of anti-Semitism, the cyclical nature of like, are we ever really safe anywhere? Yeah, well, let's get real. I mean, every Jewish holiday is like, they tried to kill us and we lived. Ha ha. <laughs> right? Like, I mean, we live inside of um, beyond the Holocaust, right? A lot of our religious practices, um, the, the prayers that we say every Shabbos, um, et cetera, are about being survivors, right? And and always remembering that we're survivors. And so um yeah that that is not an extension or or you know an exaggeration or outlandish to say that there is communal trauma and generational trauma around um being threatened and around our safety, right? Um and various ways in which our community has responded and I think we're at a point right now where um, we need to be in healing and recognize that those trauma responses are no longer serving our the, the fullness of our community. Those trauma responses to be scared, to hunker down, to close up, to be exclusionary are may have worked. They have worked for people, right? Like those are ways that our people have survived. And they might not be working for us right now today in the face of the current threats that we have today with neo-Nazis, with what just happened in the German government, 25 people arrested for attempting a coup in the German government, including judges and police, et cetera, right? Um, we have to reckon with the fact that like the white supremacy threat and the the threat of Nazis and the use of anti-Semit the the rise in anti-Semitism is not some, you know, made up thing in our mind that, you know, we're just navigating trauma and, you know, we all just need to go to an individual therapist. First of all, that response itself is white is white supremacy, <laughs> and I can do a whole other podcast. Right, about- that the problem is individual. <laughs> what do you say? That the problem is individual right. as opposed to systemic. Right. right, like if I go to therapy, I'm going to fix it. That's not that's not true. It's a systemic problem. We can do a whole other podcast about that, right? About mental health and yeah. white supremacy, yeah. but um, beyond that, I think like we have to recognize that our fear is real. And that the traditional ways that we have been navigating that fear and that we have been surviving are not actually serving the majority of people. They're serving a few minority of people. And there's a large portion of people that get left out and that get put in harm's way when we rely on our old trauma responses. And so that's that's the call right now is to be in the healing and to open up and to say, what has been the trauma response of my family, of my generations, of my community? And what are better ways that I can move and shift and heal and open up? And what, you know, we have been 
what Autumn and I have been doing and working through is safety and solidarity, right? Like when we open up to realize who actually is benefiting and who actually we can ally ourselves with, who is also oppressed by the state system, we actually have better chances of surviving and actually thriving. And I'm going to go even deeper, right? Like in terms of who benefits, like where you're like the keep it real, right? Like, so um, you were saying, Shimon, that Jews are not a monolith, right? Like you don't speak for all Jews. I don't speak for all Jews. I speak from my very particular position. But when we have this kind of hunker down as our first response, um, we're not actually being in choice about our responses, right? We're acting out of instinct, Um, But we're not actually, so when we're not acting out of choice, then we don't actually know, have I picked the choice that best serves me? Um, So I'm going to say like, there are some poor working class Jews still in this country, right? And they are very clear, like some of the stuff that serves um, Jews who have climbed the social economic ladder doesn't serve all Jews. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to be straight. Right. There, there is a class distinction and there always has been um, in terms of the Jews who immigrated to this country. Like um, there was definitely like a fight about who gets to define what it means to be Jewish. And in some ways, I think when Jews immigrated here, Jew became like this catch all that it was like, OK, like so you're not an Eastern European factory worker Jew. You might be a wealthy like German Jew. Right. Like and that these differences then all get baked into this one Jewish identity as a result of the Holocaust. But like um, previous to that, there was definitely fights about who gets to define Judaism and like um, in this country where things are so binary, black, white. Right. Like and so then the the things that black folks struggle to retain, right? Like, um, like, I don't know about you show, um, but I cannot name where my people came from. Right. But if you sit in a room with Jews, like the story of how we survived and how we traveled is like one of the main ways you're like, Oh, like I'm part of the Ukrainian diaspora that then landed here. And it, then it became the Chicago diaspora or the Philly diaspora, or the Pittsburgh diaspora, you know, like, um, and, and all of those things, right? So then when you come back to like the, the ways in which race operates and anti-Semitism operates, um, anti-Semitism is used to get all Jews to react as Jews, whether or not that's in their social economic interest. Yeah, the class discussion always needs to, that analysis always needs to be part of this, you know, um, which is part of the trope, right? And then it, invisibilizes and pushes down more on working class and poor Jews. Like, wait, working class and poor Jews even exist? You know, some people would be shocked to know that because that's so not the stereotype, right? Um, And the history, like you said, of all the organizing and labor movement. I mean, Emma Goldman, all the, I mean, we could go through so many people. Um, so shifting to like the work you all are doing, um, Shoshana, because you started talking about that with the healing, you know, what kind of work are you doing on racial justice and anti-Semitism and how do you incorporate that together? Or is there any like separation and, you know, anyway with that, is it always just together? Yeah, <clears throat> for me, they come hand in hand. 
um, because of who I am and the, and when I walk into the room, that is just what the conversation is. <laughs> um, there, there, I'm, I'm in a place where, um, I am able to navigate that and embrace that and use that as a tool for change, right? Um, but that is often the case when any Black Jew walks into a room that people will um, begin to have conversations about that person and qualify what their Jewishness or qualify their Blackness, et cetera, right? Um, and so really what this is about is um, exploring, putting out there that Black Jews do exist, um, that we've been here. No, we're not new. We've been here for generations. And, um, and in fact, that we have an important voice and an important perspective to share on social justice and particularly um to move us towards liberation for Black people, because we know that liberation for Black people will mean liberation for everyone, right? When the most, those of us who are most oppressed get free, we are all then free. Mm-hmm. If we can solve the issue for the folks who are most impacted, right? Um, and so that is the work of the Black Jewish Liberation Collective, is elevating the voice of Black Jews across the country Um, to showcase, to highlight, um, and to ensure that they have the, that Black Jews across the country who are doing work towards Black liberation and uh, and against white supremacy, anti-Semitism, white nationalism are supported. And we have members across the country from LA to the Bay, Texas, Atlanta, the Midwest, New York, Philadelphia, all up and down, where we have members and leaders in all in most of the major cities in this country, and um, our work is to organize uh, and to uplift the particular intersection that we're in, uh, because as anti-Semitism is cyclical. What I notice in my own organizing um, and Autumn and many others have noticed, which is why we came together to form this collective, is that not only is anti-Semitism cyclical, but the way anti-Semitism gets used as a wedge issue to destroy the movement for Black liberation is actually cyclical as well. The things that happen are not new. Mm -hmm. And so anytime the movement for Black liberation Um, in any decade that you look at picks up steam, you will find shortly after there is um, a drop-off. And oftentimes I have found that drop-off to have to do with anti-Semitism and how white Jews get triggered inside of their commitment to racial justice and allyship. Um, They get triggered around their own protection own safety so much so that they use those trauma responses, close up, back away, and get in fear when faced with real threats instead of digging deeper into the solidarity and trusting in our and in that white Jews have been allies for black folks, that black folks will also step up and do the same, right? Um, and so do, that there is connection and trust. And so our work is that we 
have deep relationships in all these communities because we are part of all these communities. Um, and when white Jews and, and black folks come into that uh, conflict because of uh, white supremacy and because of the sowing of distrust, um, we are here to uh, offer our perspective as people who live at that particular intersection. Um, and so beyond the organizing that we do to develop our political analysis, the support work that we do to just be in community, build community, build culture, um, thrive, right? Live into our liberation besides just saying like we're fighting for liberation. We are also living and thriving into liberation. So we want to be um, not only that liberation is the goal, but it's part of our journey. It's part of our work as a community to be consistently inside of a liberatory practice. Um, and I would say that that work um, could with Autumn and I specifically spills over and is inspired by and intermingles with the work of Jay Fredge also, which is the Jews for Racial and Economic Justice. And I don't know if Autumn wants to say more. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the theme, right, you might notice, like, in terms of what we see, is that um, there is a connection between using Jews as a way to destroy liberation movements, Right. And because the Jews are part of those liberation movements when they're in choice, because when they're in choice, they recognize, like, actually, I benefit from being part of a liberation movement. And then someone comes out and says, well, so-and-so is anti-Semitic. And then the Jews are like, peace, I'm out, yo. I'm having nothing to do with y'all. Y'all come for me. Done. And then it's like, did they come for you? Who who came for you? How did they come for you? So um, I, I, I'm going to just talk about Kanye for a second. Maybe you were saving that for later, but I'm going to bring it up. So like, here's someone. And, and I think of this a lot, like, um, I was talking to a friend of ours, who's also in the BJLC, who was talking about how Tucker Carlson, who's got like the biggest microphone in the country, like the most people watch Tucker Carlson, devoted a full hour of his show, just to Kanye, talking ish about juice. Right. And so I'm like, that's like, he didn't, he wasn't just like, here's this random celebrity dude. So he stirs up the black folks and he stirs up the Jewish folks. Now, if you know anything about Tucker Carlson and Fox News, you know that they are not about liberation or actual news. <laughs> that's true, right. too. Um, and so I was then watching this between the scenes. Um, Trevor Noah, where someone was like, why are you beefing with Kanye? And Trevor was like, yo, I just want to be real. Kanye uh, has bipolar disorder. My grandfather had bipolar disorder. And there were times when my grandfather would just, we all would just be like, wow, he's like not really in the same reality as the rest of us right now. And I'm just like, how gross would it be if then someone had put a mic in front of my grandfather on those days and put it out into the world to be like this, not only does this represent my grandfather's views, this rec represents all South Africans' views, right? And so he's like, I'm not beefing with Kanye. I am literally out here being like, are you okay? And why is it okay for us as a society to put a microphone 
in front of your mouth right now when you may not be in your most like stable, connected frame of mind and then say, this is how all Black people think, right? Like that is divisive and it's gross. It's just gross, right? Like, so when you think about like Tucker Carlson interviewing Kanye about anti-Semitism for an hour, you're like, who benefits from that? Because it's not Kanye, it's not Black people, and it's not Jews, but it's definitely Fox News, and it's definitely, like, you know, the people that Rupert Murdoch, like, represents. And so, like, and it's definitely, like, boosting Tucker Carlson's message. And so, like, I'm like, I'm like, where, who, how was this message coming out? Who is holding the mic for this message? Who is amplifying this message? Because that tells me just as much about the message as, like, whatever is in the message itself. Mm. And like, nobody is asking Kanye, look, whoa, are you okay right now? Like, what does it feel like for all of us to be asking you questions in the, in the space in which you're at? Like, what do you need to be well? Nobody's asking that for those questions. They're just like, I'm going to take this and run because this fits like what I need. But Tucker Carlson was not interviewing Kanye when he was standing there after Katrina being like, George Bush hates Black people. There was no hour of Tucker Carlson, like, asking Kanye about why George Bush is being accused of hating Black people. So when I say, like, it's just about, like, about, like, when is this message happening? Why is this message happening? When is this person being given a mic? And when aren't they being given a mic? That's what I'm talking about. But if you feel attacked and you're like basic, like primal level, then you're going to be like, yo, black people hate Jews because mm-hmm. I heard it on Tucker Carlson. Autumn, you better let these people know for real, for <laughs> real, because what people don't understand is that giving him that mic has an impact. It's not just some random person. It's like me, regular, regular Shoshana going to work in the Bronx, right? Um, pulling up to work and my regular, regular coworkers being like, oh, but Kanye's right though. Like Jews do own the whole in, in uh, music industry or like, oh, but like you don't really understand what he's saying, right? And so the thing is, Again, he's supporting the further enforcement of anti-Semitism and he's bringing more people into that fold, right? And into those rabbit holes and those dangerous, dangerous algorithms on all these platforms, crunchy to alt-right, you know, like it's real easy to fall into those algorithms. So once you think that there's an, and that's how it works, right? There's always an ounce of truth. There's always an ounce of truth in these things and then it gets blown out of proportion and then you find yourself at the bottom of a rabbit hole totally radicalized because we have access to all these platforms like Discord and TikTok where white supremacists and neo-Nazis are actively recruiting. This is not like, you know, oh yeah, ha ha ha, like white supremacists. No, these, they're, they are organized They are tactful. They are actively out here recruiting intentionally. So it's real important to understand that, like she said, it's not just the platform. It's like what is going on and that platform leads to actual violence. Exactly. Because they're out here watching this that are like, oh, yeah. 
And they, they're the people that are living in states without gun laws that will allow you to get a gun before they care, they care less about you having a gun than they do about you having a high school diploma, right? That you can read doesn't matter, but please have a gun. And those people are stockpiling weapons. There are real threats out here, as we see in the news almost every day. And I just can't keep saying that enough, right? Um, because part of for me is recognizing, like, I am not, I don't want us to be castlet or to be fooled. And a lot of folks are not paying attention right now to the rise in the threat that we have going on, not only in this country, but across the world. I'm going to add on to that two things that I think are really, really important. Um, and also, uh, Shimon, I just want to say, like, this is what happens when um, Black and Jewish meet is like, Shoshana and I will just talk. You're going to have to work to get your questions up in there, right? <laughs> like, it's like Jewish people talk and Black girls talk. And so Black and Jewish girls, we got lots to say. Okay. So, um, so like, the nuance of that is um, the church is getting shot up. The, the places of worship being shot up, Jewish places of worship, Black places of worship, right? Like the violence is on both of our bodies. So like when we're using this to recruit, I'm just going to say Kanye is sexier than like whoever's running the Proud Boys, right? So if you're using it to recruit anti-Semitic and racist fanatics who will then go and and act violently upon our bodies and our safety, like Kanye is sexy for that shit. Right. Um, you can be like, yeah, be like Kanye. And then you're like, oh, well, then I'm like somehow not racist or whatever when I'm like out here doing this stuff. Like it twists it up. Exactly. I was so, going like, to say that. Really? It, it's, it's an easy way to be like, yeah. I'm not racist. I like Kanye West. Come on. Exactly. Exactly. And so there's like, and, and that leads to very physical violence. It leads to tree of life. It leads to like what happened in, to, to black churches, right? Like, and, and it has those repercussions. Um, and then the, the second in Buffalo and the supermarket. Yes. I mean, that was a anti-Semitic white supremacist and the majority of people who were killed were black. Exactly. That's the point that we're making. So when you are looking like, so the, the thing about like, when you look to see who your allies are, when you look to see who benefits, literally you see, we are not benefiting as Jews or black folks from our safety being compromised in these ways. Um, and then the second thing that I was going to say is um, my Bubby uh, passed away a few years ago Um it, her family immigrated to this country because of fear of pogroms in the Ukraine. And um, and so she lived in this country through World War One, through the Great Depression, through World War Two, all the way up. And she's watching Trump. And she is like, I recognize this rhetoric. This rhetoric leads to the dehumanization and the unsafety. And I have watched this happen before. And I don't understand why all Jewish people are not standing up and saying this rhetoric. We know what this leads to. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so like when I think about like my guides as a Jewish woman, I think about my Bubby being really clear, like I'm, I'm listening to my ancestors here, like as I make these choices about how to be Jewish in the world. And my grandmother was really clear, like Trump's rhetoric is rhetoric that we as Jews have heard before, and it does not lead to our safety and it does not lead 
to democracy or liberation, it leads to fascism and it leads to authoritarianism. And so my, like, I'm like, my grandmother lived through this, yo. Like she lived through it. Like on her deathbed, she was still like, I'm cute because I look Swedish. Like she still had that thing where she didn't want to look Jewish. Like, Mm. because she, her body like went through when Jews were not seen as white. Right. And she is saying very clearly, like Trump's rhetoric is dangerous for Jews everywhere. And then you see it metastasized. You see it happening in Britain with Brexit. You see it happening in Germany with this potential coup. You even see it happening in India, <laughs> where there are huge Jewish communities. There are huge Jewish communities and like that have been there for thousands of years in India with the rise of like, um, kind of. I don't know what Modi is and I'm not going to speak more about it because I'm not sure my positional stuff is about that, but I'm going to say like it is more authoritarian than it is democratic. And that's the largest democracy in the world. Yo. You know, it's, and I know we got to wrap up soon, but it is mind boggling to me that in 2022 Kanye West, who I listen, listened <laughs> Because I am like still trying to figure that part out. Um, to his old stuff that was just phenomenal. Um, and he's praising Hitler like that is mind-boggling to me. And I know he's not well. I know he's not well. Um, but there's a lot of people who aren't well met with mental health that don't praise Hitler too, right? So, um, but then all these people who are like, oh yeah, like. Hitler was cool with black people. I mean, I can't even believe the stuff I'm seeing. And it's like, are you serious? Like, seriously? Like, you really think, like, you would have been okay? Um, I mean, I don't know what you all are hearing, like, around all that in New York. Because um, everything can, is different in New York. <laughs> uh, it's very different. <laughs> we have, like, the black Jews marching. Right. And, like, the whole, like, Kyrie goes back to playing the BHI, I mean, all that is BHI are out, you know, and, but like this whole thing where like, it's just mind boggling to me. Like never, never in my life would I have thought that people would say like Hiller was cool with black people. I just, that is just like totally wild to me. Like, how does that even happen? How does it even get to that? That people like think that that's true. As an educator and um, a school social worker working in a high school, I will tell you that that is a direct admonishment of our education system here in the United States. Um, We need to reckon with the core of the issue around anti-Semitism and around anti-Black racism is the miseducation of our young people and the allowance of um, various districts, you know, counties, states, etc., being allowed to get away with not actually teaching the facts um, and not actually having real conversations about history um, and about and teaching people critical thinking, right? Um, If we were allowed to be critical thinkers and actually had an education, I think we would see a lot less of this. But our education system, which our public education system, which is in fact very young, um, has not been education. It has been schooling. 
Um, and we have been preparing our young people for the workforce or um, to get out and, you know, be be pr- productive members of society instead of preparing our young people to be critical thinkers, creative, um, thoughtful, and, you know, actually to contribute to the bettering of our society and planet it as a whole. So I think that that's what we're seeing is a particularly um, amongst, you know, Kanye, Kyrie, and many other Black folks who are falling down this spiral um, and getting radicalized is a condemnation of the public education system. Because you don't think Kanye West went to Chicago public schools? (laughs) You know, we have to look at the origins of all of this and how people are taught to think. Um, and start to be in the world. So that's my little, I have to always get on my soapbox about education. (laughs) More than that, more than that, I think the other thing to keep in mind is that the, that again, we're talking about systems. We're not talking about individual actors. So the system of public education in this country, right? Like I'm going to come back to what I said before. Maybe I keep saying it about who benefits, right? Like integration, the vast amount of integration, all of this, the talks and everything that went into integration. Again, I want you to keep in mind that the vast numbers of kids who were in school during that time were white kids. And all of this money, time and effort going into like policing black kids' bodies is like taking away from uh, properly educating um, all the kids, but also the white kids in this country, right? A hundred percent. And and that also you see that in um, what's happening today with like the transgender stuff. I'm like, yo, like for the amount of airtime that transgender bathrooms in schools gets, like to the actual amount of transgender kids in. Oh, and that's my heart out to the actual amount. And that's um, that's my answer to Kanye right now. I also want to just be clear, like my heart out to go pick up my kid is like, we going to be all right. <laughs> we going to be all right. Like, so like, I don't want to leave y'all with the doom and gloom, like, because like Kanye is not the only rapper out there in the world. And I love Kanye. Like I used to sing like that, which don't kill me can only make me stronger. And there's like some truth to that. But now I sing, we going to be all right. And that's just my choice because like I'm looking to who's creating music in future and whatever dreams, but back to education real quick before I jump out to go pick up my kid from their public school here in New York city. I just want to say that like the fact that like we are spending all this airtime, all this money is pouring into these fights about transgender bathrooms right now and critical race theory, but that money is not pouring into teacher salaries. That money is not pouring into resources, more teachers in schools, less kids. Like, like there are schools here in New York City. We have the largest school system in the country that is 30 kids to one teacher in a classroom. How can you learn like that? Right. 
We are the largest school system. We are like a million kids are being educated in this school system. And the norm is 25 to 30 kids in a classroom and like closing, not building. So I want to say like my future is building more schools. My future is like 15 kids to one teacher. My, My future is instead of like spending millions of dollars on a standardized test to see if my kid is depressed, actually bringing in more social workers like you, Shimon, like you, Shoshana, into my kid's school. Like there are solutions. There are beautiful, beautiful liberatory solutions. We are not all doom and gloom. There are other possibilities, but we can't get to that if we are talking about Kanye because I just don't care about that fool no more. Oh, yeah. Um, and now I got to go get my kid. Bye. Thanks, thanks, Autumn. Thank you so much. I know you got to go. We're just going to wrap up. Right. Um, I'm going to put some links in the um, show notes and on the website so folks can get connected to the work you all are doing and learn more. And I, this was a great start of this conversation and I hope you all will come back on in the future and we can go deeper and get more into like your actual on the ground organizing and what that all looks like. So I just want to thank you both so much for coming on the podcast and for doing the work. Yes. And I um, really appreciate you having us. Just want to shout out Black Jewish Liberation Collective, blackjewishliberation.org. Check us out on Instagram at Black Jewish Liberation. Check us out on Facebook. We have Kwanzaa coming up. It's going to be popping. So make sure you, you know, come through and see what's up with the Black Jewish Liberation Collective. Um, donate. We take reparations. And so <laughs> we, we are here for the liberation and for doing the good work. So reach out to us. We'd love to be in community. Right? Right? There are definitely liberations out there in the world. Thank you all so much. Did I say liberations? I meant reparations. Okay. Peace. Thank you for listening to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please follow on Twitter and leave positive reviews on iTunes. If you're interested in being a guest or know someone who's doing great work, please get in touch. And thank you for doing real work to make this world a better place. Thank you.